This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. November 3rd, Election Day draws near, like an impending finals exam for the country. For some, this countdown seemingly could not have come sooner enough, and yet for others, see it as a day that will only confirm the direction and narrative of the last four years. For today's purposes, we analyze the immigration components of the last presidential debate and bring more clarity to each of the candidates' positions. Fortunately, we have more sound bites to pull from as this engagement was a bit more civil than the first. The most unpopular aspect of Obamacare, I got rid of it. I'd like and you we to, will protect Mr. people. President, I'm the moderator of this debate, and I would like you to let me ask my question, and then you can answer it. Luckily, it was different this time around. After the debate analysis, we will roll out the likely immigration plans from each candidate, either coming from their mouths directly or extrapolating from initiatives they have released in the past. A presidential immigration breakdown. Ami and Gaines, come join us Beyond Borders. We're going to talk about immigration now, gentlemen, and we're going to talk about families within this context. Mr. President, your administration separated children from their parents at the border, at least 4,000 kids. You've since reversed your zero-tolerance policy, but the United States can't locate the parents of more than 500 children. So how will these families ever be reunited? Children are brought here by coyotes and lots of bad people, cartels, and they're brought here, and they used to use them to get into our country. So first up, President Trump addresses coyotes. Who are they, and why are they a danger at the border? For further insight, let's turn to Erica Cisneros, a Florida immigration attorney who works closely with immigrants who have suffered from violent crimes, human trafficking, or sexual abuse, and is now seeking a humanitarian visa. In her line of work, cases of mistreatment from coyotes are unfortunately commonplace. In terms of human trafficking, I'm sure you get less of these cases, but um, what would an instance like that look like? The human trafficking cases, what I see a lot is three different types of scenarios, so to say. The first is when people come here into the United States, and it doesn't matter if it's the first time, the second time, but when they come here, using what we refer to as a coyote, which is the guide that they many times pay to help bring them Mm. into the United States. They make this sort of deal with the coyote abroad. And as soon as they come here and cross over into the United States, the coyote many times will just switch it up and say, okay, well, I know that it was only going to be $1,500, but now you owe me $3,000. And until your family pays, I'm not letting you go. Wow. At that point, the person is held captive in a house, apartment, warehouse. They're not allowed to leave. There's usually, the coyote usually does not work alone. They usually are part of a group. And so what that coyote that crossed the individual will do is hand the person off to the rest of the group that already has a house filled with other individuals in the same situation who are literally just there waiting for their family members to come up with the money before they're allowed to be released. Now, so this is like a operation, like a a business. Yes. Set up. Yes. Hmm. And these, for example, like it's not just about being held and locked up in one of these houses. They also have to be forced to work. Hmm. So, 
there are people that are, while they're held, and I find this a lot with when the person is younger or the youngest in the group, they will be the ones to be forced to clean the restrooms or cook for everybody else, especially the women. They will be they will be the ones that will be forced to do this work for all of the other people, mainly men, that are being held there. And so sometimes people in this situation, they don't realize they're victims of human trafficking because they think that this maybe is still part of what is required of them in some way mm-hmm. because yeah. they owe this money. <sighs> yeah. And e- even though they're being you know, many times beaten, many times, you know, held at gunpoint. Other people are being beaten in front of them that don't, that don't obey, you know, in debt. Yes. Hmm. Yes. And so that is one of the most common scenarios that I, that I see. For context, the coyote industry is projected to make over $6 billion per year, charging 6,000 to $10,000 per individual. Let me ask you a follow-up question. They did it. We changed the policy. Your response they to that? They did it. We, we changed. did not. They built the cages. The, they, who, who built the cages, let's, Joe? Let's talk about what who we're talking about. Who built the cages, Let's Joe. talk about what we're talking about. What happened? Parents were ripped. Their kids were ripped from their arms and separated. And now they cannot find over 500 of sets of those parents, and those kids are alone. Nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. It's criminal. It's criminal. Let me ask Kristen, you about I will say this. They went down. We brought reporters, everything. They are so well taken care of. They're in facilities that were so clean. But some of them haven't been reunited. Good. But just families. ask one question. Who built the cages? I'd love you to ask of that. Who built the cages? Okay, so there's quite a few things here. We have family separation, health conditions at detention centers, and of course, who built the cages, Joe? First, let's tackle health conditions at detention centers from a previous episode. In late March, Pike County Detention Center detainee Aldo Camacho Lopez began feeling sick and displayed fever-like symptoms. However, he did not receive any medical care. On April 2nd, he tested positive for COVID-19. Three days later, only after contracting pneumonia, did he receive treatment at a hospital. During 2020, stories of the lack of appropriate and swift care at detention centers during COVID-19 was a sweeping trend. Aldo's attorney, Christopher Cazaza, tells the story of one of those cases. So actually, I received a phone call in the evening of April 2nd from Mr. Camacho Lopez's fiance. She called me. She explained to me that her fiance was detained at Pike County Correctional Facility in immigration custody and that he had just as of that day tested positive for Mm. COVID-19. Mm. And what um, date was that? When that was April, that was Thursday, April second, twenty twenty. Okay. Cool. Um, mm. I had not represented him previously. He had received my number from another inmate at Pike County. Mm. Um, so she called me and she told me he had tested positive. I kind of went over the background of his case a little bit, and I I wasn't sure if there was anything that I could do. Mm. Um, I could hear through the phone that he was having a lot of trouble breathing and that he was in a lot of distress. He asked if I could help in any way. And the only thing that I thought is he needed to get to a hospital. So I told him, well, why don't you tell the COs or somebody 
the way you're feeling and the fact that you're having trouble breathing. He explained that his chest felt like it was on fire um, or his lungs felt like it was on fire. His chest was in a lot of pain. His bones were aching. And I could, again, I could hear that he was really struggling to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, I told him to tell the CEOs, tell someone at the staff. He said that he did. And they told, they just keep telling him he'd be fine. I hmm. said, well, what did the doctor say? And he said, well, I haven't seen a doctor. And I said, what, what type of medical treatment are you receiving? And he says, I'm not receiving any medical treatment. I said, well, what are they doing for you? And he said, they come around once in the morning. They give me a little bit of Gatorade and they give me a pill. I don't know what the pill is. And they tell me that I'll be okay. I asked him if he'd been in contact with anybody else. And he he told me he was in a cell with somebody else 23 hours a day and that that person had not been tested for COVID. Prior to April 2nd, prior to testing positive, he was in a cell with three other individuals and that he would be released into general population for about an hour a day. He explained to me that he had started exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19 around March 25th, that he had been in contact with 40 plus inmates and multiple staff at Pike County between March 25th and April 2nd when he tested positive. Um, So it really seemed like a very dire situation. And I decided during that phone call to take on his case pro bono and try and file a federal lawsuit uh, or habeas petition and a temporary restraining order to get him medical treatment immediately. Although Camacho's experience is an isolated event, it speaks to the long and documented history of the medical negligence and abuse within detention centers, dating back even to the late 70s, where, for instance, in 1978, the infamous court case Madrigal versus Quilligan revealed that medical professionals coerce and at times force Latina asylum seekers to undergo sterilizations. So this issue has been bipartisan for several decades and does not fall upon solely one administration or the other. Now, in the case of the effects from family separation, which Vice President Biden was alluding to, the psychological effects of the lack of interaction between parent and child have been documented and are found to be severe. A study conducted by the Social Science and Medicine Journal released in June 2019 found that of the 425 detained children studied for this research, 49% of those who were separated from their mothers exhibited abnormal emotional problems versus 29% who stayed with their parents. In addition, the PTSD screening results indicated that 17% of those children studied met all criteria for a probable diagnosis of PTSD a condition known to be a lifelong battle. Now, just who built the cages? What we saw does track what we saw in pictures taken in secret days before. Kids in chain link holding areas using foil blankets. But now we have context and explanation. Agents say the foil blankets, for instance, reduce the chance of allergic reactions. They say the facility was not set up hastily to cope with a glut of immigrant children. They say it is a facility built about the year 2000 for adult detainees, converted when the need arose to house hundreds of children. 
There are systems set up for showers and clean clothes every 24 hours, health checks, health But he had eight years he was vice president. He did nothing except build cages to keep children in. Vice President Wrong. Biden, your response. The catch and release, you know what he's talking about there? If in fact you had a family came across and they were arrested, they in fact were given a date to show up for their hearing. They were released. And guess what? They showed up for a hearing. And this is the first president in the history of the United States of America that's anybody seeking asylum has to do it in another country. That's never happened before in America. That's never happened before in America. You come to the United States and you make your case that I seek asylum based on the following, on the following premise, why I deserve it under American law. They're sitting in squalor on the other side of the river. President Trump, your response, uh, so 30 important. seconds, and then we'll move It on. just shows that he has no understanding of immigration or the laws. Catch and release is a disaster. A murderer would come in, a rapist would come in, a very bad person would come in. We would take their name. We have to release them into our country. And then you say they come back. Less than 1% of the people come back. We have to send ICE out and Border Patrol out to find them. We would say, come back in two years, three years. We're going to give you a court case. You need Perry Mason. We're going to give you a court case. When you say they come back, they don't come back, Joe. They never come back. Only the really, I hate to say this, but those with the lowest IQ, they might come back. Okay, okay catch and release. We need a brief definition and some fact-checking before moving further. Catch and release refers to a practice of releasing migrants to the community while he or she awaits hearings in immigration court as an alternative to holding them in immigration detention. In the year 2000, in the Zittas v. Davis court case, it ruled that except in certain circumstances, an illegal immigrant should be held in detention without a trial for no longer than six months. For fact-checking purposes, this was determined during the George W. Bush administration. However, President Obama further defined its boundaries, placing less priority on low-security risk migrants, releasing them in shorter amount of time. Trump did away with this procedure and deployed military forces to prevent fleeing refugees from crossing over the southern border. In result, you may remember the migrant caravan story during fall of 2018. At the time, we had Tom Jowitz, vice president of immigration policy at Center for American Progress, to speak on the matter. So it's a two-part process. Um, the government uh, formally today, this morning, published an interim final rule, and then shortly thereafter, the president issued a proclamation. So I think the best way to explain it is, under the Immigration Nationality Act, uh, Section 212F, the president has the authority to uh, deny entry or to set conditions on the entry of any uh, person or class of persons um, whose entry into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the country. That's the same statutory authority the president used to impose the Muslim ban uh, one, two, and version three. Um, you know, essentially, and there he did sort of countrywide, in the first case at least, he said countrywide uh, bans, uh, as well as a complete shutdown of refugee admissions um, in the first two versions. Um, so this time, what the proclamation says, what the president signed today basically, it says that any person uh, who enters the United States between the ports of entry um, is that their entry into the United States would be detrimental to the United States. 
and that they will therefore, one condition upon their entry between those ports of entry is that they would not be permitted to apply for asylum. And then what the interim final rule that was issued says basically is that any person who is subject to uh, that proclamation basically um, is not able to apply for asylum between the ports of entry. Now, the trouble, so let me, as a practical matter, here's what that means. What that means basically is if you're coming to this country and you want to apply for asylum, uh, what they want you to do is go to the ports of entry and once you get in, say, I need asylum. Um, that's all well and good, um, except that for the last two years, and even going back to a lesser degree uh, during the Obama administration, but it was still, certainly still happening occasionally, um, uh, the Customs and Border Protection officers at those ports of entry are just doing something called metering which basically means that they are not, it's not just like open open for business where you can just walk up and say, I need to request protection from asylum. They're actually waiting at the international border crossing point and they're essentially asking you what you're there for. And if you're there to request asylum, they're saying you can't take one step further, you've got to go back to Mexico. And when we've got space for you, we'll let you know. And so you have large groups of people who have been spending days or weeks sleeping out in the open um, on the streets, basically, waiting for the federal government to allow, you know, one, two, three, four people in per day in some places um, to make their claim for asylum. So that's the reality of what's happening. Right? People are being told they can't apply for asylum between the ports of entry. They must go to the ports of entry. When they go to the ports of entry, they're being told they cannot get in, and they may have to wait days, they may have to wait weeks, and if they really direct all traffic to the ports of entry, they may well have to wait months. Um, and so that's, that's how we are effectively shutting down access to asylum for people who are fleeing the conditions that I just described a minute ago. And largely, that covers the immigration portion of the last presidential debate. Of course, we won't know exactly what each candidate would implement if they were elected into office until it actually happened. But I hope this episode brought a little more context and background to the issues that each candidate brought up. Now, in terms of likely federal immigration policies being pushed after the election, that is an entire episode in itself. However, briefly, we do have some insight into what Vice President Biden would like to do in his first 100 days in office. In your first 100 days as president, what will you do to create a pathway to citizenship for many undocumented immigrants? That is a big issue for the AAPI community. As you know, 1.7 million face deportation threats Another 100,000 are young people who are affected by the, the DACA program. So two parts for you. What are you going to do to be more visible? And what do you say to the folks that think you're just going to be President Obama 2.0? And what are you going to do about immigration right when you get in office? On day one, I'm going to send a legislative immigration reform bill to Congress to provide a roadmap to citizenship for 11 million undocumented immigrants who contribute so much to this country, including 1.7 million, 1.7 million AAPI. My immigration policy is built around keeping families together, modernizing the immigration system by keeping families, unification and diversity as pillars of our immigration system, which it used to be. Ending Trump's cruel and humane policy at the border to rip children from their mother's arms. Take immediate action to protect dreamers, including the more than one 100,000 eligible dreamers from East and South Asia, rescinding the un-American Muslim ban immediately, 
restoring refugee admission in line with the values and historic leadership of our country, raising the target to a minimum of 125,000 people a year in my first year. He's cut it down to 15. The average has been 95,000 a year. Working with Congress to establish a bipartisan legislation to ensure a minimum admission of 95,000 refugees. That's who we are. That's how my great-great-grandfather, great, three, four greats back got here. <laughs> he got in a coffin ship on the Irish Sea, never knowing whether he's going to make it. And he made it to the United States of America in, in 1848, when the British were anyway. So streaming, streamlining naturalization process, make it easier for qualified green card holders to move through the, uh, his backlog. And by the way, he just indicated he ended H-1B visas the rest of this year. That will not be in my administration. Now, unfortunately, there's not a succinct 100-day immigration action plan that the current administration has rolled out. Luckily, here at Immigration Nerds, we have been following virtually every White House immigration policy release for the last two years. And honestly, it's too much to condense for this wrap-up. But here's a starting place. If you are curious on President Trump's basic philosophical positioning of what type of immigration he's advocating for, I would listen to episode 45, White House New Immigration Policy Proposal, A Merit or Family-Based System. If you want to know his actions towards immigrant security and safety, go to episode 108, The Expansion of Immigrant Data Collection. Stance on public charge and travel ban reasoning? Go to episode 77, This Week in Immigration, public charge, birth tourism, and travel ban expansion. If you need a DACA Supreme Court breakdown, go to episode 68, DACA Supreme Court hearing, a line between legality and agency discretion. And that's just a start. I'll provide an even more comprehensive list of episodes in the show notes if you would like a deeper dive into the White House's immigration policy evolution over the past two years. And there you have it. I hope this episode was helpful for you. I'm happy we were able to document all of these key moments throughout the years as they were happening so that one day it could be referenced. I think this period we're in right now is one of those moments. At Immigration Nerds, we do not advocate for one position or another. We try to provide insight into the people, policies, and ideas that are shifting immigration today and discuss potential outcomes. On November 3rd, we will know, hopefully, one of those outcomes. And if this episode further clarifies what both candidates see for our country and helps you make a more informed decision come election day, my job was done. I'm Ian Gaines. I hope this brings meaning. See you on the other side.